Amen. I don't know if, uh, if maybe you're still trying to finish up your shopping. If you do, we finish up here at five, so you'll have a little bit of time left. But yesterday I participated in that social experiment called Walmart the day before Christmas Eve and uh, saw many of you there too. And <laughs> that was kind of fun. It really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, people were actually, I saw a lot of very friendly people. People weren't, didn't seem as stressed out as I was expecting. I think I was the more stressed out one there, doing last minute things and, and getting ready for uh, Christmas Eve dinner and all that. But as I've been getting ready to, uh, to speak tonight on behalf of God to you all, reading in Luke chapter 2, just thought, I don't often title the messages that I preach, but tonight I would call it Missing Peace. And I wouldn't call that P-I-E-C-E, but P-E-A-C-E. We kind of know Christmas is about this season of peace, right? I mean, it's kind of expected. We talk about peace. We sing about peace. But the problem is many people don't have it. I mean, let's just be honest. There's a lot of people that are sitting here tonight that we can talk about peace and sing about peace. And we, we know it's, it's good and we know we should have it. But it seems to elude so many of us. Maybe we get pieces and parts and little times of peace, but for the most part, we're a pretty stressed out bunch, aren't we? I mean, just look around the world. And, and so missing peace is what I thought we would talk about. Let's read Luke chapter 2, and then you'll see why I chose this as my uh, sermon title. And hopefully by the end, you'll find out what that missing piece is. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days, those days meaning those days that Elizabeth had given birth, Mary's relative Elizabeth and her husband had had a baby. We know him as John the Baptist. And now Mary, pregnant, at least three months pregnant, probably more than that by this time. But it's in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Uh, Luke, as I've mentioned to our church over the past weeks, uh, Luke was a doctor. He's the one that wrote this gospel. And he pays attention to detail, and he wants to fix the Christmas story in history. And I think that's important because people that we know and people that you talk to, well, they equate Jesus with, you know, fairies and fairy tales. And that uh, is some mystical figure and some made-up story, and he didn't really exist. Well, Luke goes to a little bit of length here to make sure that we know that Jesus is not on the level of fairies and leprechauns and that kind of thing. He fixes Jesus firmly in history. What kind of history? Well, it's the days of Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome. It's the days of this man named Quirinius who was governing Syria. And it's in those days, those historical days, those days where people that we know as historical figures were living and operating and governing and the world was happening. It's into that historical world that Jesus is born. Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. That's where he and uh, Mary were. They had to go to Bethlehem, which you know from hearing the story for so many years. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So Joseph and Mary take this 80-mile uh, trip. She's uh, somewhat uh, well along in her pregnancy. We don't know exactly how far. Again, she's at least in her last trimester, most likely. 
And they have to go, very inconvenient, they have to travel on Christmas. Anybody going to be traveling for Christmas? Either going to head out tomorrow sometime or... We do often, but uh, in recent past, we haven't, uh, haven't had to travel. And I'm glad for that. I'm, I'm not a big fan of traveling. But they had to travel. And not only that, but she's carrying Jesus, this child, with her for this 80-mile. Now, they don't have, you know, shock absorbers on the car and all that stuff and rest stops. And it's not an easy journey. But off they go. Down near Jerusalem to Bethlehem, we visit there when we go to our Israel trips. We go and we see There's only one Bethlehem. I mean, there it is, historical, geographical places. By the way, when archaeologists are looking for biblical things, they use the Bible as a reference. They say, well, the Bible says it's there. We should look there. And oftentimes, the Bible leads them to find and discover these archaeological discoveries. Again, very, very accurate in its portrayal of things. Bethlehem, in our day, is under Palestinian control in the Middle East there, and um, but we visit there when we go to Israel. That's where they were heading, to Bethlehem. That's where Joseph had to be registered, the area, the region his family was from. And Mary's called his betrothed wife. They're not married yet. Betrothal is sort of an engagement. But the interesting thing about this, it says his betrothed wife, and she's with child. So you can imagine as they're going home to visit mom and dad and the uncles and aunts are all around and grandkids and the whole family's gathering together, Here's Joseph with his betrothed wife, the, the woman he's engaged to, and they're worried it's going to be a shotgun wedding because she's pregnant. And so you can imagine there's a lot of murmuring going on. I don't know how it is when you get together with your family. Maybe you're the black sheep in the family. Maybe you're the one that doesn't fit in in the family and the one that everybody's talked about. Or maybe you've got an Uncle Bob. Everybody has an Uncle Bob. I got an Uncle Bob. But maybe it's him that everybody talks about. But there's somebody in your family likely that, well, that, that person, they just sort of don't fit in. And I imagine Mary and Joseph, well, there's some gossip going on. There's some discussion going on because she's pregnant. Now, they're not going to believe that God did it. That's a hard thing to swallow. That's a tall tale one would seem to think. But here they come and have to deal with that, have to endure that in their Christmas story. You know the looks, right? The looks like uh, you don't really belong here. The looks like I can't believe you did that. They're having to endure the looks. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. She will have other children, according to the Bible, but this is her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which would have been the standard way to wrap a child when they're born, these long strips of clothes. I remember when we brought our son home from the hospital, our firstborn He's now 20, but I remember when, when we brought him home, like, they don't prepare you for this thing in school. Like, they don't prepare you, and we skipped all the classes, you know, we didn't need that stuff. So, we, you know, we have the, the baby, uh, Jacob, and, and they just, the nurses are so good at wrapping him up, aren't they? They wrap him up so tight, like a little sausage, they put the little cap on the top, you know, they're all tight, snuggled in there. And then we put him in the car seat, in the car, you know, like, we'd never done this before. So, we pull up to the front of the hospital, and, and, Helga comes out with Jacob, and we got the car seat all ready. You know, we did our shopping, and we did all of our nesting and all that stuff. We put him in there, and, and I just looked at him like, oh, no, what do we do now? Like, we've got a baby. So we drive home, and, you know, Helga had already done all the nesting, and Mary didn't have a chance to do any of that. They're 80 miles from home, staying with some strangers in, in a place where that's only fit for animals, 
And, but they have this baby, and you know, uh, they're looking back on this. And go, all oh, the memories, you know, all the memories. This humble beginning. And this is so crazy about the way God works. And this is the God you have to know. I don't know what people have told you about God. But I think one of my prime goals in life is to help people know the God they're going to reject if they're going to do so. You see, because a lot of people reject the wrong God. You heard about things about God. You heard some, someone said something or you believe that God is this with a hammer ready to knock you over and, and you know, nail you with for your sin. And the, some of you came in here wearing hard hats because you're afraid the roof is going to cave in because you're here. And, and I don't know where you heard about that God. But I want to make sure you know about the right God before you make your decision to reject him. You need to really know who he is. Not from your neighbors, not from your parents or your grandparents where you learned about God. You need to learn from God himself. I mean, don't you want to be able to speak for yourself? Have you, maybe you've heard gossip about yourself, or maybe you've heard someone say something about you as if they knew you. They say, well, I'm not like that at all. Who, say, who, say, who would dare say that about me? I, I want to be able to speak for myself. Don't you think God deserves a chance to speak for himself? And he's showing you here in this story the way he works, the way he thinks. It's not like people think. It's not like... Mankind think if I was God, man, I'm, I'm being born in the nicest place I can find with all the comforts and all the creature comforts and all of that all around. But Jesus, when God has a son, he's born in a very, very humble, a humble place. He's born wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, manger... For them, it would have been a stone trough. It probably not wooden. It could have been, but most likely a stone, a hollowed out stone trough. And stone is cold. So the swaddling clothes come in handy if you got to lay your baby in this makeshift crib because that's all you got. And the in, the word that's used for in here, isn't the standard word like in the parable of the Good Samaritan where the Good Samaritan wraps up the guy that got beat up and takes him to the inn. It's a different word. This is a guest room or a, a guest part of the house. It's used of the upper room where Jesus had his dinner with his disciples. This is a guest room. And oftentimes there was no room. The, the house was full. So all these people are visiting Bethlehem. There's probably a family house. There's probably other relatives visiting. So where do they have to go? The lower level where you, you know, like the garage, I guess you'd say. The modern version would be the garage where you park your cars, except that they didn't drive cars. They rode donkeys and stuff like that. So that's where the, the animals would be brought in to have shelter and have food. And that's where Jesus is born. Very, very humble in this beginning. Very, and born as a baby. I mean, how vulnerable. That God would make himself vulnerable to his creation is to me unbelievable. Because how many of us like to be vulnerable? We do everything we can in our lives to not be vulnerable. But God says, I'm going to make myself vulnerable. Now, verse 8 of that same chapter says, There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now these are shepherds. For us, it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning because we don't know a whole lot of shepherds. But in that day, the keepers of the sheep, that was considered a dirty job. It was considered not a very nice job to have. They were considered unclean. They were considered to be thieves and untrustworthy. 
and uh, despised. It was the despised job. So when the angel comes to them and the glory of the Lord shines around, they think, oh, we're done for now when we're in trouble and they're afraid. What is God's going to say? Okay, your time is up. Come to get you. Which is what a lot of people feel like if they hear from God. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings or good news of great joy, which will be to all people. So it's not the message they were thinking. The angel says, wait a second, hold the phone. I'm not here to bring you news of judgment coming or condemnation coming. You know, angels are those kind of messengers. But I'm actually here to bring you good news. And don't we need some good news, people? I mean, how many of you watch the news? I, I had to stop watching the news. My wife convicted me about that because I'd watch the news in the morning. I'd watch the Today Show or whatever was on, and it would just make me mad. Is they're stirring up controversy, they're pitting people against each other, and I just would get angry. And and Helga would say, "Why do you watch it then?" I said, well, I, "I don't know, because I need to be informed." You know, I, it just makes me upset. There's so much the bad news, the front of the cover of the newspaper. If anybody reads newspapers anymore, we all get our news online now, but it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. And so here the angel says, look, there's good news. And I want to tell you that in the midst of all the bad news that's out there in the world, even right now, there's terrorism. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. A lot of people are medicated for those things. People have a hard time sleeping. They're worried about this. They're worried about that. There's racial tension. There's religious tension. There's all kinds of tension in the world. Would you agree with me? I'm not telling you something you don't already know, right? And so in the middle of all that, you know, when you look in the mirror and you see your face, face all scrunched up because you're worried and you're anxious and you can't sleep, and you try to self-medicate with this, or you try to deal with it with that, or you isolate it, you got all these ways to try to handle these things. I want to tell you that this Christmas tonight, God is saying to you, I've got good news. And it'll bring you great joy. Man, do we need some of that. We need that in the church. Don't we, church? If you're visiting, you don't have to answer, but I want to talk to the church. Don't we need that in the church? Well, if they're visiting, they know we need it because they look at us, they go, they're supposed to have great joy. They don't have it. Why should I go there? When the church doesn't have great joy, I bring you good news of great joy. Who's it for? Is it just for some people? Is it just for the rich? Just for the famous? They're the ones that have the least joy. I bring you good news of great joy to all kinds of people, to all different nations all across the world. The problem of conflict, the problem of war is a universal problem and it needs a universal solution, a solution that applies to everybody. Jesus is that solution. He's not just the American God. He's not just the Jewish God. He is for everybody. And that's what the angels say. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. What is the good news? What's the great joy going to come from? Verse 11 says, there is born to you, to the shepherds, and to you and to me. That's the thing. It's wonderful to have this to be for all people, but I need it to be for me. And I am part of all people. I am part of the whosoevers. Aren't you? You're part of the all people. That means this is for you too. And so the angel says to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, and this is for you. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, who is 
Christ the Lord, who is the Messiah, this one who's anointed, this one who is going to be chosen by God, who has been chosen by God to accomplish this special task. What did he come to do? What is he saving people from? Not the government, not violence, not all that stuff. The biggest problem we have is a sin problem. That's the problem. And we can try to talk about all this other stuff till we blew in the face. We have meetings, debate things. We have all of this rhetoric. The rhetoric drives me crazy. The talking heads on TV and everybody's going to talk. We all know we need world peace. Nobody knows how to do it. We've been trying since the beginning of history. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. That's where it all started. Sin entered the world as the first time we see the word afraid in the Bible. And who are Adam and Eve afraid of? They're afraid of God. And so they hid themselves. So the first marriage conflict comes up there. Then we go to chapter 4, and we see the first sibling rivalry, and it ends in a murder. The first act of violence carried out from one person against another. And religion hasn't fixed that. Adam and Eve tried religion to fix that. Religion doesn't fix peace. Religion just causes more war. Causes more headache and heartache. We spend half of our time trying to just introduce people to, to the God we know, to the real God, the one, and let him talk for himself. The other half to trying to undo all the damage done by religion. Because Jesus is a person. And it's about a personal relationship with him. He wants to know you personally. And be an intimate part of your life and you of his. He wants to be united together with you. The intimacy of a marriage. And that's not religion. So again, I don't know what you expect from church, but religion is not what I signed up for. Stand up, sit down, repeat after me, and leave and be the same person you always were. That's not what Jesus... Jesus died to save people from what? From their sins. He came to save people from their own... Not other people's sins, although that happens too. From their own sins. Watch this. Here's the sign, verse 12 says, this is the sign to you, you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, baby, lying in a manger. Well, that's kind of a unique thing. And suddenly, I love this, so there's one angel talking, verse 13 says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, or some would translate this, and on earth peace, toward men on whom God's favor rests. So all of a sudden, there's this heavenly choir, and they sing this little short chorus, even I could memorize that, and they say, hey, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. And that takes care of the heavenly part. God gets the glory. On earth, we're so busy seeking glory. People are so busy trying to be famous, so busy trying to be known, so busy trying to be recognized. And it's God is the one who gets the glory. There's never going to be peace because people are fickle. And the more you try to win people's favor, the minute you get this group to like you, that group hates you. You know, we used to say to be the man, you got to beat the man. Remember that? To be the man, you got to beat the man. So once you kind of get some glory, you can't keep it. You're always fighting for it. And it brings tremendous anxiety. There's no fight for last place. Nobody's fighting for the bottom of the heap. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. And I read that, and that's what's been bugging me. That verse, that line. I just want to ask some questions. Where is it? Where is the missing peace? If Jesus came and the angels say, hey, this baby, this birth, 
man, God is awesome for doing this. He steps in to mankind's history, brings this child, Isaiah 9, tells us about him. His name will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Glory to God. And on earth, peace. And I just ask myself, where is it? And you may ask yourself, where is it? And again, we've gone through some of the things we see. We just don't see it. Maybe we see little bits here and there. But think about not just the world, peace on earth in general. Let's just talk more locally. Just Blue Vanna County. Let's talk about your house, your family. Let's talk about your marriage and your kids. Is there peace there? Let's talk about your heart. Man, this is Fluvanna County, and we had this shooting not too long ago right here in our county. I think I, I think we had two shootings. Or, I was riding my bike on a backcountry road, just minding my own business. And a car passes me, and I see a hand come out of the window and make that gesture. A mock drive-by shooting, and with me as the target. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And I bet many of you would say, man, what I wouldn't give. For some peace, and of course, peace always has to come with quiet. What I wouldn't give for some peace and quiet in my life. So the question I ask is, where is the peace? Maybe you've had to answer this question. I get this question all the time. If God is so good, then why does he allow all this stuff on the earth? Why is there so much unrest? Why is there so much violence? Matter of fact, by Genesis chapter 6, even the thoughts and intentions of man's hearts are violent before the flood. So why is so much violence if God is so good? So you're saying what I'd like God to do is constrain everybody's behavior so no one has free choice, and that would include you, wouldn't it? G.K. Chesterton, when answering an essay question for the London Times, I believe, the question was, what's wrong with the world? And his little answer, two words, I am. So God gives people that he loves, he gives us free will, and I'll read to you Luke 19. So here's this boy that's born, this baby, the Savior. He's going to enter in as a 33-year-old man. He's going to enter into Jerusalem. Coming as the king he was meant to be and, and that was promised that he would be. And when he comes in, we call it the triumphal entry. This is what he says. He says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known. This is what he's saying to the people in the city. If you had known, even you, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace. In other words, him. Him. He. Being the king in a nation or a heart. He on the throne is what makes for peace. And he says to them, if you only knew what would have made for your peace. But now these things are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So we're speaking of a different kind of visitation, an earthly visitation of God. That's what Christmas is. God becomes human flesh, takes on human flesh, comes in the, in, the form, in the likeness of man. And it's interesting because we know what happens. We know that this baby, this promised child becomes a crucified and mocked king. And over his head, when he's crucified, it says, King of the Jews, as a mock, as a, as a tease, as a joke. And he's rejected. And he says to you, and he says to me, and he says to us, if you had only known the things that make for your peace. And I want to say that to you tonight. 
if you would only know the things that would make for your peace. It's not about controlling your environment because you can't do that. See, a lot of people have a false sense of peace, right? They have this false sense of the, the world gives a sense of peace. Or the world tells you about a sense of peace that says, if you just fulfill your desires, you just satisfy those lusts, you live your authentic life. What is that anyway? What is authentic anyway? Who are you really? And how do you know? Maybe you are the result of some twistedness that's happened in your life. Maybe you've never even become the you that you were meant to be in Christ. And so we say, oh, the, my authentic self, and how do you know what that really is? And you've tried to find peace by embracing this and embracing that, and it's this and it's that, and it's, you know, it's, it's more materialism. And those things, they don't give true peace because it doesn't last, and it's external. The peace God wants to give you is internal. James chapter 4. James says, hey, where do wars and fights come from among you? They come because we lust and we desire. We have these conflicting interests in our life. We don't have what we want. We sort of feel unfulfilled. And so we have to manipulate people. And we have to hurt people because we have needs. Husbands, can I talk to you for a second? How many times have you said, but don't you know I have needs too? I have needs. And we all say that in marriage. I have needs. What about my needs? The wife might say. See, everybody's so busy trying to get their needs met, and being offended by other people. Do you see how that creates conflict? Because you have needs and I have needs and our needs conflict. So there's a false sense of peace. And so I want to tell you that Jesus says to them, if you'd only known the thing that would really make for peace, all the things you've tried have left you empty. James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Man, they come because you lust, you desire, you don't have. So where do we go with this? I really would love to read to you Romans chapter 1. Paul reminds us the challenge of rejecting God. You see, why isn't there peace in the world? Because many in the world reject God. And the punishment for that, the difficulty with that, is we get to live life without Him. And the product of that is what we experience with wars and crises and terrorism and conflict in church and in homes and all that. You want to live without me, God says? Okay, that's your choice but don't be surprised when you don't like the world you've created without me. So what do we do this Christmas? Well, I think there's only three things that really mess with our peace. How do we find that missing piece? It's really simple, really simple. Three simple things that mess with our peace. Are you ready for what they are? The past, the present, and the future. Three simple things, right? Those are the three things that mess with our peace and God has dealt with each one of them. God has dealt with the past. He's dealt with your past. The way you grew up. The things you experienced. The things you did. And He gives you a new start. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. Don't go back there. Don't look back there. Press forward. It's in the past. The thing you have to know about the past is you can't change it. You can't change it, but it can be forgiven and it can be redeemed. And I don't know what you've been through, but today you can have a new start, guaranteed. And that's good news. So there's the past, but then there's the future. The past, you can't change it. The future, well, you can't avoid it. Guess what? Things are not going to get better. Can I break the bad news to you on Christmas? I'm sorry. Merry Christmas and all that, but things ain't getting better. 
You can't say, Pastor Steve lied to me. Do we see things getting better? I mean, there's some good periods, but mostly rough. And the Bible tells us that right before Jesus comes the second time, and he is coming back, there's going to be all kinds of nonsense in the world. And there's going to be a false peace. There's going to be a guy that comes on the scene called the Antichrist. He's going to offer a false peace, but he's just going to want to be worshipped himself as God. It's going to be horrible. So the past, you can't change it. The future, you can't avoid it. The world is not going to get better. And ultimately, Jesus is going to come back. And then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The third thing that messes with us or messes with our peace is the present. Past, you can't change it. The future, you can't avoid it. The present, don't waste it. Don't waste it. How are you doing in your life with peace? How are you doing with making peace with other people? How's that? Do you have a feeling, a gut feeling in, in your own life that there's something, there's a missing peace? You know, I think the Lord wanted me to read to you guys tonight. I think he wanted me to read to you Psalm 23. Psalm 23. You see, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. You got a shepherd? You got someone helping you out, taking care of you? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then you will. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Can you say that? Can you say that God is with you? Or is he just a distant God that you know about from somebody else or you've heard about? But the psalmist could say, "For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen to this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Talk about being at peace, even with your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That psalm brings instant peace when you believe it by faith. 